0: Thanks for joining us again this week. I am still looking forward to the day that we can get back together and enjoy our time in fellowship, just holding hands and, and uh, hugging and just being able to encourage one another face to face. But until then, I'm just glad that you're able to be here and, and to watch and to take part in our worship this morning as we're uh, putting this out on Facebook. Uh, continue to, to pray that soon we can uh, have this moment something that will be passed, and we can move on in in a closer relationship, not only with each other, but also with God. This morning I want to take you to the book of Mark, chapter 14, beginning in verse 10. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Of all the faces about the cross, this face, I think, really is, is one that's, that we see. It's, it's tragic. It's more than just tragic. It's, it's something unique about it that really causes us to, to lack an understanding and gives us some perplexity about it. Those who've stared into the face of Judas have often come away with a, a different impression of, of who he is. A few of the, the people see Judas as this blundering and mistaken hero trying to, to help conquer the world, but most people see him as somebody who was a little bit different than that. He was more of a, an inhuman scoundrel, and, and, and they shut their eyes to see any good that he might have possibly had in him at all. They, they remember only one single act of his pathetic life, and that is his betrayal of our Lord Jesus. Well, this morning, I think it seems to me that it's not quite fair that we always look at him that way. So I want us to to take another look at him today and see him maybe through a different pair of spectacles. And to see him as as if we could forget just that one moment in life that was so dark and look at him in a different way but how could we do this who is judas i guess that's really the first question we ought to ask ourselves who is this man that that nobody ever wants to name their children after anymore judas he wasn't a monster Uh, he was simply a man a man very much like you and me but but really that's not saying much sometimes those who are decent and 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 respectable they, they are prone to look at others who aren't that way through a set of eyes that see them as people who are made up of a, a material that's so different than us, made up of, of some other slime or undesirable thing rather than the fine material that we ourselves are created in. It's hard for us to, to realize the similarities and the commonality that we each have with Judas because we are like him in a lot of different ways. And yet, he, He was one who was willing to sell out and betray his Lord. G. Campbell Morgan, he's a prolific British evangelist, a preacher, a leading Bible teacher, and author during the late 19th and early 20th century. I enjoy reading his sermons and some of his writings, but I don't tend to agree with the statement that he makes here. As he begins to speak about Judas, he says this. He says, I do believe that Judas was a man in the ordinary sense of the word. I believe that he was a devil incarnate, created in history for the nefarious work that was hell's work. I mean, there no doubt through history, there have been, there have been a lot of people who feel the same way about Judas. But I find that hard to agree with that statement, that he wasn't a man, that he was something or someone created for this, this task i mean that kind of explanation raises a lot more questions than it does give answers to us if judas were created as an incarnate devil if he were sent into this world to be the traitor of jesus then really he's not to blame for what he has done and we shouldn't look bad upon him and then we have to ask ourselves then under those circumstances who then really is to blame and the only answer we can give would be god but i can't accept that either god has never created Any man, either a monster or or a devil, traitors and scoundrels are are not born, but I think they are made from their choices that they themselves make in life. So Judas wasn't a monster, but he was a man. But yet, I don't think he was always a traitor either. Certainly Judas was born... uh, with the condition that we are, but I don't think we would look at him and see the guilt of treachery upon his soul. I mean, when his mother looked at his, his tender eyes as a child, I don't think she saw treachery and, and betrayal within those eyes. She just looked at him with love and, and just like any other mother would look at him. But no more was he a traitor in the early days of his discipleship with Jesus. I mean, there's probably some who think that that Judas began with this idea that he was going to betray Jesus and he slipped himself into that. But some people probably thought that he had had to have been a traitor from the beginning. But the scripture does not even give us any indication of that whatsoever. Yet, a year before his betrayal, before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus made this statement in John chapter 6, verse 70. He said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. The real meaning of this statement, a devil, diabolos in Greek, is one that gives us the idea of one who's an accuser, a slanderer, a liar, or that could be devilish in his nature. And at that time, Judas was facing the wrong direction in life. But even then, Jesus doesn't say that he's entirely bad. matter of fact, Jesus never mentions that he's completely bad at all. I mean, the fact that that horrific deed filled him with such utter remorse at the end of his life suggests that there's still just a part of him that had a little bit of hope, possibly. When Jesus said that Judas was devilish, He was only saying what we often say about one another. His criticism was certainly even harsher when he spoke to Peter. Remember those wonderful words that Peter made back in Matthew chapter 16 and and verse 16? He said that, that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it wasn't but a moment later, matter of fact, just seven verses later, Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. But I don't think Peter was Satan himself, even though Jesus said that. And neither was Judas. You see, even though it's a sharp and a cutting statement as it can be, the words that Jesus makes about Judas and about Peter, it doesn't mean that there is no hope for them. But in Judas' case, something changed. Judas, he became a traitor but he was not one really from the beginning so what was he well I tend to think that Judas possibly was a friend he was one of the friends of Jesus I mean he began to follow Jesus early on as as the disciples would follow Jesus and the crowds would follow Jesus And, and, and he followed him of his own free will because there was something about Jesus that just attracted him to him how they met the Bible doesn't tell us we really don't know Judas wasn't a Galilean. He was a Judean. And so he wasn't even really from the area in which Jesus was living at the time and and, and making his, his hometown up in Capernaum. But Judas makes his way there because he heard of Jesus and he wants to know about him. And one day they stand face to face. And one day they look into each other's eyes and perhaps... Judas stood on the very fringe of a crowd as he heard Jesus speak. And he may have heard Jesus speak those words that are recorded to us there in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. Maybe it was those words that Judas thought, I've got to follow him. And the conditions must have seemed hard to a man like Jesus, who we eventually think of as the one who is a lover of money. But the truth is, Judas turned his back on his business. He turned his back on his income and his finances, and he becomes a disciple of Jesus. And he's going to walk with him and go with him everywhere he goes for the next three years. And ultimately, Jesus then not only recognizes him as one of his disciples, but he calls him as an apostle one that he is going to send out into this world and and there's something about jesus that made this irresistible for judas to turn away from and so he follows him I, i think there are some people who might suggest that judas became a disciple maybe with mixed motives but if we get into the realm of motives i don't think anyone can stand Certainly not us. Certainly not any of the disciples, the, the fellow disciples of Judas. I mean, James and John, they come to Jesus one day uh, hiding behind the skirts of their mother and they're asking if there's any way that they can be set up in positions of power to his right and to his left. And the other disciples, they get upset about there, and they're indignant because, not because James and John asked, but quite possibly because they didn't ask themselves first. And so we have to look at Judas at one time, he was a very friendly individual with Jesus. He was a close friend of Jesus. Not only that, but when we think about it, he was, he was trustworthy and he was faithful because of his own choice. He then becomes his follower of Jesus. Second, I believe that Jesus was a friend, not only because he chose to follow him, but because the master chose him as well. Jesus didn't have to choose him. I'm sure there were probably some other people who were more worthy to be a disciple of, of Jesus, but yet Jesus chose him specifically. I ask myself, why, why would Jesus have chose him? I'm sure he didn't choose Judas because he was some rascal. I mean, a good man doesn't select their friends based upon the, uh, their, their lack of moral character. I, I don't really want to believe that Jesus chose him because he knew when he first saw him that this is the man that's going to betray me so I need to make sure he comes along with me I think possibly Jesus chose him just as he chose the other disciples because he saw within Judas possibility I think we can be sure that Judas was at one time a friend because he was regarded as one by the other disciples as well. I mean, they trusted him enough to make him the treasurer of all their finances. And when Jesus sent them out two by two, I'm sure that that he did his work just as much as they did. That he was there casting out demons and he was healing people and he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God is at hand. He was just like all of them. And, And had that been who he really was at that point, I'm sure that John and Matthew, the other disciples who write the Gospels, they would have made mention somehow about how Judas was this nefarious, treacherous person. But yet they don't even make mention of it. They don't even give hint until the very end about their suspicions. And you see, Judas, even at the end, was not suspect to be the one who would betray them. Listen what had happened at the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 20. When it was evening, Jesus, he reclined at the table with the twelve, And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were were very sorrowful and began to say to him, One after another, Is it I, Lord? They all thought that they could have been the one to have betrayed him. They didn't all turn and point their fingers at Judas and say, Yeah, he's the man. He was furthest from their thoughts. And even when he got up from the table and he left, they even indicated that maybe he was going out for some errand that Jesus had sent him on, maybe to go buy food or to, to pay for something. We, they didn't know. But none of them suspected that Judas was, even at that moment, was the one that would betray Jesus. I think of all these reasons, I think they helped me understand that Judas was once considered a loyal friend rather than always being thought of as the traitor. So how does Judas... How does he become this traitor? Well, I think some would suggest that if he wasn't always a traitor, maybe he was mistaken about Jesus. And they believed that in spite of this heartless conduct here at the end, that he deeply, truly loved Jesus at one point. Not only so, but that he trusted Him with a faith that was more daring than any of the other disciples might have had. Because, see, they declared that they believed in Jesus with such an absolute conviction he was sure that if maybe if, if confronted with a situation where Jesus was trapped, that he would then have to do something to prove that he was the Son of God and, and that he would all of a sudden command the kingdom of God to be established. And so with that type of faith, Judas may have decided to put Jesus on the spot And so he created a situation where Jesus would have to exercise his power and his authority and assume his role as conqueror. Naturally, I think all of us would probably want that to have been the case. But the trouble is, there's no evidence in Scripture that that's true. I mean, all the evidence points in the opposite direction. I mean, evangelists through the centuries who have preached the gospel message and they bring Judas into it, they, they speak of him merely, not as a misguided or mistaken man, but one who was deliberately treacherous in his actions here at the end. But there's even more convicting still. Jesus himself, whose loving eye always somehow saw the best in a man, he makes no excuses for Judas. Matter of fact... Jesus, who's even apologizing for the soldiers who are murdering him upon this cross, there in Luke 23, he he asks his father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. But he has no word of excuse for this traitor. He doesn't regard him as a man who, though misguided zeal, did some kind of foolish thing, but, but one who through wickedness of heart did a treacherous and a devilish thing. So how then can we explain Judas? Well, there's not a whole lot written about him, so we have to guess. We can take into context everything around it, and we can come up with our own opinions about him. I think of this we can be sure. There there came a day when Judas turned his face away from Jesus, and he took that first step down the wrong road. Maybe it seemed a, a trivial matter at first, but by the end it was a tragedy let me tell you that the direction in which we travel is the most important fact about us all you see what we are i believe is of importance but what we are becoming is really something of greater importance if we are facing the right direction then really there's no telling how Christ-like that we might become in this life. And we have the whole eternity to climb that mountain. But if we're facing in the wrong direction, ever so slightly, there's no telling what depths of depravity we might discover ourselves into. Just being off course one degree. And in the course of history, eternal. Judas, for some reason, he chose to take the wrong path. He was not only in in the the steps that were false that that he took, but Judas was the only disciple that wasn't a Galilean. I mean, that in and of itself offered a soil in, in which the choking weeds of jealousy might grow. And so when he looks at at the other disciples, and maybe it was one day as he's sitting there, he began to think about these things, and it began to come clear to Judas that all the other disciples, they had something in common with Jesus and and his confidence in them. And Jesus began to take certain ones aside and entered into a a circle of friendship that nobody else was in. And, And maybe Judas wanted to be in the inner circle, but Maybe it's just because he wasn't a Galilean. I mean, this inner circle was composed of that blundering idiot Peter and those two hot-headed and temperamental brothers, those sons of thunder, James and John. And, and Judas, he considered himself probably very bright, probably very intelligent, one of the, one of the best of these men. He was more, probably more trained in, in economics and things than any of these other guys. And so he probably thought well of himself, and, and yet he's not included in the inner circle. In all probability, there was this huge disappointment of Judas. Not only so, but it it doubtlessly arises within him a resentment that grew more and more bitter with the passing of days. And this resentment was further increased by the fact that things aren't probably turning out the way that Judas had hoped they would. You see, when he began to follow Jesus, he was sure that this master was going to establish a kingdom here in this world and was going to restore to Jerusalem and to Israel the rightful throne of the kingdom and and to overthrow the government of Rome off their shoulders. And here was this man that he's met who's going to set his people free and he's going to enable his nation to put its foot upon the neck of its enemies and and he's going to conquer them, those who had already been conquered. But, But here again, he is met with disappointment. While Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and everybody is shouting and proclaiming him to be the king of kings. And and they're singing Hosanna in the highest and they're looking forward to his entrance there and and he is fulfilling all the scriptures coming in. They're probably thinking, now is the time. And so what happens, Judas recognizes that Jesus stops right there on the Mount of Olives and he, he begins to cry and he begins to weep over this city this isn't the king that he's wanting this king seems more defeated than conquering and Jesus does nothing more than weep over a city which he should have conquered maybe in disappointment in his own personal advancement and in the prospects of a worldly kingdom Judas perhaps decides to get out of this mad adventure and get whatever little he could with him and therefore, he began to steal from the group's finances. Of course, he didn't call it stealing. Maybe he thought, I'll pay it back in, in time and, and, and everything will be okay. And Then he told himself that what he took was probably the best probably payment for what he has done. Because after all, he's, he deserves this. He's given up his business. He's given up his livelihood. And he could have made a lot more if he had stayed back where he was rather than following Jesus. And so this is really due him. But for whatever his reason was to begin to steal, he began to steal. And while Judas is soothing his conscience with these little lies, while he is deceiving his fellow disciples, he realizes that there is one whom he is not deceiving. Jesus. Maybe he felt that Jesus knew him for who and what he was. He was disappointed and and grief in those kindly eyes that read to the very depths of his soul and they knew his heart and his inner thoughts. And so he begins to find himself extremely uncomfortable every time he's around Jesus and just wondering what is Jesus thinking. Maybe he knows, does he really suspect? Is he whatever it is? And so he begins to build in with him this resentment and this this hatred and, and it changes. And he puts the blame on Jesus rather than himself because Jesus is the one who's not doing what he's supposed to do to become king. And therefore he begins to hate this one-time friend with a deadly passion. And it's so intense that his hatred, that finally he says to the enemies of Jesus as they enter into that passion week, that final week of Jesus, and in Matthew twenty-six fifteen, he says, What will you give me? If I turn him and deliver him over to you. What was the price? Thirty pieces of silver. What a measly amount of money. Thirty pieces of silver. I mean, that's the price that you would give to buy a slave. No doubt Judas probably expected more, but his seducers, these Pharisees, these Priests, these teachers of the law, they had him at their mercy. And he had betrayed Jesus into their hands. And now there's no going back. Therefore, he, he takes the money. Because after all, 30 pieces of silver is 30 pieces of silver, right? And, and here's a little side note. The temple treasury in which they pay him out of is the same treasury in which they are to purchase the lambs for sacrifice on the day of atonement the irony in that that the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for your sins and for mine on that day of atonement was purchased through betrayal of Judas Jesus the Lamb of God but I don't think greed was likely his primary goal for betraying Jesus I mean had it been the case I don't think he would have kissed him. And and that kiss, that kiss, there's something more about that than just finger pointing out the master to his enemies. The word kiss, katafileo, it's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke six times in the Bible is all it's used. And it insinuates more than just a a mere peck on the cheek. It, It insinuates a passionate kiss that seems to have no end. And in these six times in Scripture that it's used, three times it's in reference to Judas' kiss. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all use it. It's used another time, once in the book of Acts, when it's describing the elders of the church in Ephesus when they were trying to say goodbye to Paul and they realized they're never going to see him again. And their emotion is they just won't want him to stop. They don't want him to leave. The other experience is when Luke writes in the Gospel of Luke about this sinful woman who comes in and interrupts a dinner party in which Jesus is at and she's there at his feet and she's weeping and she's crying and her tears fall upon his feet and so she gets down on the floor and she wipes his feet with her hair and then she begins to passionately katafileo his feet. This kiss, it doesn't have that passion, but rather it has poison. I mean, it's venomous. Jealous, disappointed, greedy Judas has now come to hate Jesus so much that he, he betrays him with this passionate, poisonous kiss. So what can we say about the destiny of this pathetic man? I mean, where is he now? And on this area, surprisingly, the Bible really doesn't say much. I think there are three things we can look at. We, we can look at what Peter's opinion was of it, because he tells us in, in the book of Acts, when he begins to communicate with the other disciples about replacing Judas, listen to what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 25. Peter tells us that Judas went to his own place. Well, it, That states it rather delicately, doesn't it? It really doesn't give us a whole lot. He doesn't say that Judas plunged into the eternal uh, abyss. He only says that he went out to meet the destiny that he had prepared for himself. He went to his own place. I mean, we enter into a door, each one of us, for which we are ready. If we prepare ourselves for the companionship with Christ, then that relationship we will have. But if we prepare ourselves for the companionship of those who hate what is best and they love what is the worst... Into that companionship we shall go also. We each go to our own place. So it was with Judas. I think we can listen to the words of Jesus as he uh, tries to explain as well. So what does Jesus think about the destiny of this traitor, his betrayer? Well, before the betrayal took place, Jesus knew that Judas was not his friend, yet He refuses to dismiss him. He knew that if love and patience could not save him, isolation and ostracization and and, and indifference would surely fail as well. But Judas makes this impossible. So in his last prayer, Jesus, as he is there in Gethsemane, that long, dark night following the Last Supper, He speaks these revealing words. John 17, verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. The scriptures might be fulfilled. The son of destruction. Some translations have it, the son of perdition. Well, that's Judas. And with infinite heartache, Jesus says, "I've lost him." I don't think there can be any more tragic words than that, that Jesus realizes he has lost Judas. I think we can also observe the reaction of Judas himself after the kiss. Judas expected to go his way, but but he can't do it, and and, and his, his fatal fascination draws him to the trial of Jesus, and he sits through there listening, and finally he hears that this man that he has betrayed is sentenced to death, and that that terrible reaction sets in. I mean, it's it's awful to think of of the suffering of this desperate man, and the the very flames of hell are kindled, and and they're they're ready for him, and infinitely. The most awful hour of his life is upon him, and he has needed help before, but but never has he needed anything as crushing as this right now. So where does he turn in this hour of need? And I think that's the searching question for each one of us. The answer to that will give us a look into the very heart of this man. Where does he turn? Where do we go when the skies are black? And when life for us is, is fallen into ruins, we seek help from a variety of places. Some of us turn to alcohol and drugs, and others turn to God. Stop right there, John. Yep. All right. We've got a 30 minute mark. Okay. Stop, dude. We'll go back nope. to where we'll we does drawing. he turn in his hour of need, John? Well, go back to where does he turn to his hour of need? his hour of need. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'll take, it, I'll take it before that. Okay. Cool. He has never needed help before, but never has his need been so crushing as it is right now. I mean, where does he turn in his hour of need? I mean, I mean that really is a searching question for us. I mean, the answer is that it will give us a look into the very heart of this man. Where do we go when the skies are black? When life for us has fallen into the ruins? we seek help from any kind of source that is out there. Some of us, we turn to alcohol and drugs and others, they turn to God. But Judas, in his hour of need, turns not to Jesus, but to the heartless devils that have wrecked his soul. I don't think I can think of any more revealing nor tragic fact than that. He saw himself as hopeless, as doomed at this point in life. And, and it, shows, it shows us the effect of Judas's sin upon himself. He has so blinded himself to the mercy and the goodness of Jesus that in his blackest hour he sees that there is no more hope in the worst of men than in love incarnate. There can be no longer any place for them to, to turn. There can be no hotter hell than this. And in the blindness is a danger that threatens not only Jesus, but every one of us. We can refuse to see until our eyes finally close at last time. So where do we go when our foundation is shaken? Where where do you turn when, when that which you have built your life upon is crumbling before you? So ignorant was I, I did not know there was a God. My Sundays were spent on the streets of London in play. I mean, those are the words of Edward Mote. Edward rose from an unruly childhood and he became a great writer and a minister. He composed only one song, but a song so great that it is one that we have kept through the years. It has been a favor to people from around the world. And in his early adult years, Mote attended Tottenham Court Road Chapel where he would heard the sermons by the noted preacher John Hyatt. And, and he soon learned from Hyatt's sermons that Jesus Christ could take away his sins and could remove all the fears of life and give him the peace of heart and the mind that he had so long desired. Mote became a, a carpenter's apprentice. And through hard labor and conscious efforts, he eventually owned his own cabinet shop. And one day, while walking to his shop, he began thinking that that he should write a hymn. Before he reached his shop, he had the chorus in mind. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Before the day ended, he had four stanzas written. And the following Sunday, he was visiting in the home of, of a friend, a minister whose wife was on her deathbed. And, and during the afternoon, they, they were reading from the Scriptures, and, and they prayed with her. And, and as the preacher looked around the, the place to find a hymnal from which they could sing some songs for her, he, he couldn't find one. And so, so Moat pulled out of his pocket this song that he had just written. And he asked if he might sing it to her. And so it was agreed. She seemed to enjoy the hymn very much. And he was so pleased that she found comfort in the verses that he copied it a thousand times and he printed it out for distribution for other people to have. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Sometime later, Edward Mope became a Baptist preacher. And his efforts in his woodworking and stuff made it possible for them to have a house of worship built for the congregation. And they were so grateful that they offered him the deed to the property. But he replied, I do not want the chapel. I want only the pulpit. And when I cease to preach Christ, then turn me out of that. He served his congregation for for more than 20 years, never missing a single Sunday for any reason at all. And in his 77th year, as he lay on his deathbed, he said, I think I'm going to heaven. Yes, I'm nearing port. The truths I have preached, I am now living upon. And they will do to die upon. Ah, the precious blood which takes away all our sins. It is this which makes peace with God. What a victorious ending to a useful life. He was reared in a godless home. He learned an honorable trade and he gave it all up to become a minister, a preacher of the gospel. And his memory will remain for generations because he took time one day to write a simple hymn. Matthew seven twenty four says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. I pray that you never turn your back on Jesus, that you fully trust Him to the very moment of your last breath, that you will see in Him the Messiah, not one that has had earthly kingdom, but the one in this earth who created a kingdom that is eternal and is in heaven. And it is into that kingdom that He calls you to live. And it is through His name and His name alone that you can enter. Put your faith and your trust in Him. Don't betray Him. Don't be a Judas. Be like Edward Mote and recognize the blood of Jesus covers over all your sins. And putting your faith and your trust in Him is what you live upon and you can die upon. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you've given us a character such as Judas that we can examine in life. And Father, he's just like us. He saw the potential of being with Jesus and what Jesus could possibly have done for him. And yet he turned and he walked away. But it wasn't just the walking away, it was the betrayal that creates such a conflict. And Father, may we never be like that. May we never turn our eyes and our face away from Jesus, but we will walk toward Him, keeping our focus and our attention on Him always. Until that moment when He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, we're amazed that You would love us enough. That Jesus would have gone to the cross even for our sins let alone for the sins of Judas. But may we receive it as a gift freely given and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Glad that you are able to join us. In just a moment Alan is going to come and, and uh, share with us our time of communion and I pray that as you focus on the bread and and the cup that Jesus creates his new covenant with us about. That you and your family will realize the importance of that gift and the significance even of the betrayal that had to take place so that Jesus could offer himself for you and for me. God bless you all.